This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent nonprofit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, visit boundoff.com donate. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Unstop Charlie by Karen Sosnowski and The Bombshell by Tanya Malik. Unstop Charlie, written and read by Karen Sosnowski. Listening time, 7 minutes, 10 seconds. Unstop Charlie by Karen Sosnowski. Gingerly, Charlie rolled on his new tights. Thinsolate, a second skin, praised by the runner's sights. Meanwhile, his daughter's voice hammered his ear. Regarding your social issues, Dad? Charlie pictured her get assertive books. They bullied from the pulpit of Lisa's too small bookshelf. I've gotten to know Mom's Bill better, and he really likes, you know, people. Frankly, you're more of a virtual socializer. Hmm. Smoothing his second skin, Charlie recalled the rosewood waiting burnished in his basement for wall-to-wall shelves he designed for Lise. Lise's voice rose. So, bottom line, Bill, Max, Mom, me, we'd like your approval for Bill to walk me down the aisle. Charlie dropped the phone, tugged on layer two, Thermax sweatpants. Dad, I understand you find communication difficult, Lisa was saying when he returned, but I don't like to be ignored. Sorry, sorry. Pulling on fleece socks, Charlie remembered he'd meant to mention those bookshelves that last night over dinner. After a pause, his daughter relaxed, chattered. Flowers, cake, expenses. Charlie's nightstand photo showed Lise, age three, running towards him, smiling. Had they hugged when he'd put the camera down? He was certain of it, even though she'd been shy and he'd worn undershirts with pit stains to the beach. What did Lise need with his shelves? She had Ikea down the street. He had his new hobby. Bye, Charlie said. Legs covered, rotator cuffs be damned, Charlie yanked on his upper body base, then windbreaker. Gloves, check. Gator, check. Per a particularly solicitous website, Charlie smuggled a sock into his tights to keep his package warm. For my own good, he cackled. His cat scuttled out of the room. In scuttled a memory. Charlie, fourish, high on spring, squatting to drop turd on mother's crocuses. Charlie, moments later, nose full of poop, agreeing, yes, father, it's good for me to be, forgetting the word, socialized. Charlie clucked, cotton mouth, last night's beers. Abruptly, he turned his daughter's image face down, pulled a checkbook from his nightstand. Before leaving the house, Charlie emailed a photo of himself in his running clothes to his ex-boss and to Mary, his estranged wife, CCing her partner Bill. The subject? Whatever makes you happy. Then, practice jogging round his kitchen, he poured coffee dregs into his travel mug, downed a little cold medicine. Once in the car, he turned the air conditioning off. Windows down? Check. The local news repeated, radio off. Exiting the car, Charlie stomped the shriveled up toad. He peed on it, a coffee-colored caffeine-scented drizzle. Then Charlie hit the bike path running, feet slap-slapping to an old mantra, for my own good. 
Five months ago, Lise had made Charlie a dinner that brought back Wednesday evenings past, nights when Mary left for yoga. All week long, Charlie had eaten his wife's vegetables, taken her EQ quizzes, apologized for failing. But those Wednesday evenings, solo Charlie dazzled. Burgers, Lise? Burgers, Dad. Then, secret handshakes, Simpsons, chow down, Sundays for dessert. School counselors diagnosed Lise as very quiet. Mary freaked, wondering, girls' schools, private therapists? But those Wednesday nights, Lisa talked a lot. Books she'd read, weird dreams she's ha she'd had. She talked a lot to Charlie. That night on her deck, too, she'd been chatty. Guess you know what I want to discuss. Mouth full, Charlie raised his burger. Lisa raised her back, then scowled. I'm serious. You're going to take this mom thing lying down? Charlie winked. More or less. After Mary left, Charlie had laid down on her spare room bed. Dry-eyed, he'd breathed her bitter scent. You know that Bill is only 35? He still lives with his mother. When you got fired, Mom had to out herself. They couldn't do it midday in your bedroom with you there. She says you're fine with it? Charlie stared at his plate. Wednesday nights, no matter how hard he'd cleaned, he'd always missed some chocolate on the TV, relish on the faucet. Mary would explode. No wonder you know who's got issues. Sorry, sorry. Before escaping to the basement, Charlie would wink at least, though. He'd live all week long on her wink back. That night on her deck, Lise didn't wink. Dad, won't you stick up for yourself? Mary had presented divorce as their duty to raise Lise's self-esteem. To shut her up, Charlie agreed to offer his grounds his own depression. This is good for you, Mary observed. Responsibility. Whatever makes you happy, Charlie said. But moments later, a growl escaped him. Lise is fine. Noting fists, the woman cowered. Whatever makes your mother happy, Charlie told Lise. She handed him his Sunday. Her disgusted eyes made his tear. Thinking of Lise, Charlie slowed, but then he was on to the high school bully insisting he fork over his lunch if Chuck Fuck knows what's good for him, and his ex-boss advising that he use early retirement's opportunity to take up hobbies, and Mary's suggestion that Blessing Bill would bring him peace. A new mantra quickened Charlie's pace. They can't stop me. Two people reported seeing Charlie Abraham running on a code red summer day when alerts blared unequivocally. Seniors, the obese, those with health conditions, stay inside. Noonish, a Korean tourist walking, had dismissed the runner's costume as an American fad. Someone that old should know what's good for him. Later, a 22-year-old elite runner passed it to Charlie. Melting in shorts and sports bra, she'd shouted at the old man, You should stop for your own good. They found the spare water bottle she'd thrown him still full on the ground where it hit. The memo of a $50,000 check in Charlie's pouch addressed to Lise Abraham read, with love from the virtual communicator. Charlie ran all afternoon through honeysuckle blasts, they can't stop me, and dried up river stench, they can't stop me, as heat crazed cicadas buzzed, as palpitations mounted, as he went blind, deaf, clammy cold, they can't stop me? His mantra turned question just before its answer, hidden from Charlie for 60 years, forever unshared with his daughter, solidified into an incontrovertible. 
Karen Sosnowski is a writer, mother, and occasional moderate jogger living in Arlington, Virginia. Others of her audio stories have played in Ward Riot, This American Life, and Studio 360. The Bombshell, written and read by Tanya Malik. Listening time, 13 minutes, 34 seconds. The Bombshell, by Tanya Malik. Mrs. Devon lifted her sari and shook the dust out of her sandals. In the waning light of the evening, she spied another stucco house in the distance, a light at the window burning harshly. Really, thought an exasperated Mrs. Devon, these people just increased her work unnecessarily. Didn't they realize there was a war on? Approaching the errant stucco house and its flickering light, Mrs. Devon smoothed out her sari and firmly rapped on the wooden door with her torch. When the man, his lower half wrapped in a cream dhoti, opened up, she knew at once that he recognized her. There were very few people in the town of Ambapur who did not know Mrs. Devan, the only woman member on the town's governing council. She was the only one of all those miserable cowards on the panchayat who had not only volunteered but was unafraid to alone, yes alone, patrol every road and byroad of this town each evening once the siren for blackout went off. Madam G, he said, his tone contrite, differential, but Mrs. Devan was in no mood to be appeased. Are, you want the Pakistanis to drop a bomb on your head or what? Do you know the meaning of blackout? Put that light out at once. Mrs. Devan drew herself to her full height of five foot five inches, knowing full well that just like Goddess Durga, she was a picture of grace and lightning bolt fury. With such ignorant civilians, it was no wonder Winston Churchill, whose passing just a few months earlier she had mourned with the rest of the world, hadn't supported India's quest for self-rule. There will be a special place for people like us who save others from themselves, she reassured the great statesman up among the stars. Going to inspect your Raj, Commander Churchill? Her husband, Mr. Devan, would say every evening as she pinned her hair in a neat round bun, each grey strand artfully hidden in its knot. She was unsure if he was being sarcastic or approving, but what did a man who spent most of his time tending chickens know? The unsightly coops Mr. Devan had built over most of their terrace a few years ago had forever ruined the show of her house. The house that the president of the local Congress party, a very learned and esteemed man in Mrs. Devan's view, had once called a jewel of post-colonial architecture. And then to increase the flock to over 50 and turn the one-room unit on the other side of the vegetable garden into a granary. Where was she to store her travel trunks and winter quilts now? To convey her displeasure, Mrs. Devon took herself off to her brother's house in Nandnagar. She privately contemplated not coming back. But she returned, for where would a woman's place in the world be if not in her husband's house, even if it smelled of chicken shit and sounded like the inside of a water turbine? People had talked of Mrs. Devon's milky skin and fine bearing since she was a child. They had often remarked on the brightness of her mind. As the seventh of eight children, her parents must have missed hearing these remarks, or else how could they have married her off to a man who called himself a businessman, but had no head for business? She could have been a Maharani in some mansion in Delhi, or gone to medical school and been a famous surgeon. Only acknowledged by her father when he was to pay her dowry, it had vexed him considerably, he had then left her to her fate. 
As Mrs. Devan told her husband many times, she refused to let such trifling twists of fortune trounce her. It was because of her own blood, toil, tears and sweat, to use Churchill's own words, that they were able to maintain their status and eminence among the people of Ambapur and beyond. As the dhoti-clad man rapidly complied with her directives, turning off the lights and plunging them again in darkness, she turned around without a word and resumed her walk on the deserted road. Mrs. Devan had more to do that evening than inspecting everyone's compliance with blackout rules. She was on her way to the Basti on the other side of town, where Radha, whose husband was a local farm labourer, had given birth a few weeks ago. Do not waste too much time persuading the silly girl, thought Mrs. Devan to herself. There will always be other babies, especially with people such as these. But Mrs. Devan acknowledged that it would be good all around if she could procure this child, especially as this one was a boy. Who knew when another boy child would be born? She entered the collection of ramshackle huts, picking her way through the garbage littering the narrow winding paths between the shacks. Once again, she went over what she would say to Radha. She would describe the Mehta's house. How Radha's eyes would grow when Mrs. Devan would tell her of rooms sparkling from, with lights from chandeliers of crystal and of lawns as wide as cricket fields. Friends of her second eldest daughter Geeta, who lived in Delhi, the Mehtas had invited Mrs. Devan for dinner on her last visit. At their house, Mrs. Devan had beamed approvingly when she had smoothed her hand over the taut silk satin of the Mehta's rosewood sofa. And when she had cut into the juiciest rasgulla, sipping the oozing rose-flavoured juice with a gold-plated dessert spoon, she had agreed with the Mehtas that they were without question deserving of her help. Mrs. Devan was particularly fond of her second daughter Geeta, who had the good sense to follow Mrs. Devan's own counselling and, and example in the matter of making friends and moving forward in life. It was due to this strategic politicking and mixing with the right crowd that Mrs. Devan had been able to make a good match for Geeta with an up-and-coming captain in the Indian army. Her eldest daughter Abha, who, unlike Geeta, had not inherited any of Mrs. Devan's most pleasing features, had had to settle for an insurance adjuster of decent yet adequate means. Such life, thought Mrs. Devan, unfortunately did not bring a platoon of servants or other perks that were part of military life. The roar of a hawker hunter streaking like a black arrow overhead interrupted Mrs. Devan's thoughts. It headed in the direction of the front lines, not too far from their town. She was glad, at least, that Geeta and Abha were in Delhi. It was safer there during these uncertain times of war. Ambapur was close to the border and an army base, making it a likely target. But Mr. Devan had been unwilling to leave his chickens, his mooly and turnip gardens for too long, and he had insisted they waited out here. Mrs. Devan's thoughts flitted to her two youngest daughters. They were spending the evening at a friend's house not far from home, probably swooning over Devanand's heroic turn in his latest movie. Once this war got over, she would have to redirect her energies to getting them set up in life, because if it were up to Mr. Devan, they would be more chickens instead of sons-in-law. She thought back to all the couples to whom she had brought such joy. Maybe she could ask the Shettys to recommend some good families for her girls. She had got them a baby boy too a few years ago and at a good price. They would definitely be eager to reciprocate her kindness toward them. She entered the shack to see Radha lying on the charpai. 
Mrs. Devan removed the handkerchief tucked into her sari and lifted it to her nose. Radha's five older children ran or lolled about the candlelit shack, their skins blackened by sun and dirt. Just like rats, thought Mrs. Devan, and Radha held on to them like they were diamonds. As soon as Radha saw Mrs. Devan, she grabbed the baby bundled next to her and holding it to her bosom began to cry. Stop this racket, said Mrs. Devan. You'd think I was beating you, which I will do if you don't see sense. Radha blubbered and waved her arm about. What are you saying, you silly woman? Speak clearly. That Urvashi who lives near here, Radha sobbed. She says it's not right to take our children. She says we should tell the police. Mrs. Devan's irritation knew no bounds. Police? Police? You're accusing me of stealing? Are I give you good money. That Urvashi is just jealous because you'll be getting money in your pocket and she has no more children to give me. I'll not trouble myself with you idiots anymore. Then see how you like it. Mrs. Devan removed her sandal to hit the ungrateful creature covering on the bed but thought better of it when she realized that she would have to put her unshod foot on the grimy floor. So she just waved the sandal threateningly at Radha and hopped around a bit to slip it back on. Police! I tell you, whose house do you think the police inspector comes to for Diwali, huh? Mrs. Devan turned away in disgust. I will speak to your man, she said, pushing aside the hanging fabric that served as the door, getting ready to leave the now silent room. The promise of money gave men good judgment in all circumstances. I know it's right, but how can I? said a broken voice behind her. And Mrs. Devan knew she, that she would be having many enjoyable dinners at the Mehta's in the future. She was next to the quieted woman in a jiffy. Don't worry, she said soothingly. It'll happen very quickly. You have your other children to consider. Mrs. Devan pinched the cheek of the baby resting in his mother's arm. Soon, she announced, to make Radha comprehend the rightness of her decision. If you ever pass him on the street, he'll be like a prince. You'll not even recognize him. This made the silly woman wail again, and Mrs. Devan hastily removed herself from the wretched place before any minds were changed. She would return for the child once she settled the terms with the Mehtas. A pleased Mrs. Devan turned toward the road that led to her neighborhood as she finished her rounds that evening. She felt drained yet satisfied and thought about taking a holiday, a short break to reward, reward herself for her trying work. Maybe when she took the baby to Delhi, she would stay there for a few days and bask in the Mehta's gratefulness. She would stay with Gita for a week and then perhaps Abha, if she felt like it. In fact, she was beginning to feel that she should stay longer in Delhi, leave Mr. Devan to putter about among his cabbages. Gita was sometimes too slow where she needed to be quick, but with Mrs. Devan present to better guide her, they could conquer mountains with just a few steps. As dark clouds drifted over the moon, she immersed herself and often had thoughts of severing her moorings to Mr. Devan and the people of Ambapur. Lately, she found herself quite fed up with them. They took too much leeway with her willingness to help, yet did not reciprocate with the elegance and generosity like educated fine people of the city would know to do. She passed by houses seeped in darkness, yet Mrs. Devan had no fear, for she knew the ways of this town. She debated whether to go home or return to the Basti and deal with that dastardly Urvashi, who was blackening Mrs. Devan's name with talk of police. 
but whose sister was heavy with a child due in a few months. She was sure she could persuade Urvashi into some mutually beneficial arrangement, depending on whether her sister's child was a boy or a girl. A percentage of the transaction would sweeten her tongue, if not silence it completely. Absorbed in her musings, Mrs. Devan failed to see the bright light pulsing over the rise of the road. The thunderous blast lifted and threw her into a nearby ditch, and as the ground shook for a long moment, a billboard, uprooted from its base, landed on top of the ditch, covering Mrs. Devan like the lid of a cooking pot. Gratitude for the cocooned protection of the ditch quickly dissolved when Mrs. Devan, squirming to rise up, found her middle was a sticky mass of silt and blood, and that she was unable to move anything below her navel. She managed to raise her head slightly, but when she tried to shout out, her mouth filled with grainy ditch water. This muddy water made its way down her throat, clogging her passageway with, with its muck, causing Mrs. Devan to unfortunately inhale again as she struggled to breathe. The result was another mouthful of the same choking sludge. As consciousness reluctantly took leave of Mrs. Devan, her emptied, uncluttered brain had three clear and precise thoughts. First, she realized that even if she could yell for help, no one would hear her, for hadn't she admonished them to stay in their houses and under their covers during blackout? Next, she thought of her mother, who always mistook her for one of her siblings, and in this confusion had given to Mrs. Devan's older sister her green and gold kundan necklace set, a set she had promised to Mrs. Devan. And Mrs. Devan's last thought was of Radha's baby boy. An unassailable sadness gave fleeting feeling to her lower regions as she recalled the infant swaddled in a thin sheet in his mother's arms, his curious brown eyes fluttering open at the sound of her voice. How he snuggled closer to the warmth of his mother's breast when Mrs. Devan had squeezed his supple round cheek. Mrs. Devan remembered all this and felt deep regret for that poor sorry infant. His value to anyone would drop considerably now, particularly as she would no longer be around to add to it. Tanya Malik grew up in India, Africa, and the Middle East, and currently lives in Northern California. She has just finished her first novel, The Last Bargain. Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund and the President's Fund of the Greater Cedar Rapids Community Foundation. Further support comes from the Google Grants program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.